day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for joining us. When we talk about the racial disparities that exist in American society, far too often we leave out the very real ways in which indigenous communities suffer from those disparities. This summer, Bridge Magazine is boosting its reporting on many of those issues with the arrival of reporter Megan Lada Gupta, who is covering tribal news in Michigan for Bridge. She joins us now to talk about what she'll be focusing on and her own mission to call attention to indigenous issues. Megan, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, Steve. Thanks so much for having me today. Yes, and welcome to Bridge Magazine, uh, one of the great publications here in the state of Michigan. Uh, So let's start with this. You're a member of the Sault Ste. Marie tribe of Chippewa Indians. Uh, Mm -hmm. Talk about your background and how you became active in calling attention as a journalist to indigenous issues. Well, um, like you said, I'm a member of the Sault Ste. Marie tribe of Chippewa Indians. It's one of Michigan's federally recognized tribes in the state of Michigan. It's in the Upper Peninsula. And my mom is actually, um, I'm, you know, Sault Ste. Marie tribe on my mom's side, and my dad is actually Indian from the country of India. So definitely an interesting kind of uh, family dynamic (laughs) to grow up with. Um, But I think, you know, growing up and just, you know, being able to have a tribal community and just going up north every summer. I don't live on a reservation. I live in Ann Arbor. But, um, you know, being able to keep those strong ties has definitely been super important to me. And last summer, I was thinking a lot about, you know, what it means to have better representation of indigenous peoples in our mainstream media, because so many times, um, you know, the media often relies on stereotypes or just kind of inaccurate ideas of what, you know, contemporary indigenous life is like. Mm -hmm. And so I thought a little bit about policy and, you know, how policy is often shaped by the ways in which people really think about a lot of communities. And I thought that it would be a great idea to start my own newsletter. Originally, it was just kind of a newsletter for a few friends and some people who I just, you know, were in touch with and interested about this stuff. But it's really grown over the past year. Um, And so I send out a monthly newsletter. It's called Indigenizing the News. Folks can subscribe at indigenizingthenews.com. And we do a variety of things. We share articles from other news sites. We have some original reporting of our own. And most importantly, we also have a lot of, like, educational resources Mm. for allies and teachers and other types of people who might be really interested to learn and just want to come into it and, you know, think about their own education and reflect on that. Yeah. So, so as you mentioned, uh, the Sault Ste. Marie tribe of Chippewas is a federally recognized Indian tribe, but, but I, I'm not sure people realize how prevalent uh, Native communities are here in Michigan. There are 12 federally recognized uh, Indian tribes. Uh, talk about the, the, the lack of coverage and lack of awareness, I guess that exists around Native populations here in the state of Michigan? Yeah, um, well, you're right. There's 12 federally recognized tribes in Michigan, and there's actually 574 federally recognized tribes within the boundaries of the United States. Mm -hmm. So that's a statistic that usually surprises a lot of people because that's almost like 600 federally recognized sovereign nations 
and in the state of Michigan to have to have 12 nations it's it's really beautiful and it's important to note that all of these tribes have different histories they have different treaties they have you know different you know cultures and and ways of life we have a lot of similar lived experiences but we have a lot of different experiences as well and so it's really important and that's why um I'm so grateful and excited for my job with Bridge this summer is to be able to highlight some of those differences and some of the contemporary experiences that we're having, both issues, but also some of the strengths and community resilience that we're seeing, even though even though we're in some definitely difficult times for sure. Mm-hmm. So right before we went on air this morning, uh, NPR aired a story about the Navajo Nation mm-hmm. having the third highest rate of COVID-19 in the nation, which is really remarkable and, and very tragic. Uh, and the reservation there has 30% of the people without running water. I, I would imagine that is an extreme example of the things that Native populations are experiencing right now. But I wonder if you could talk more about what you've been hearing about Native uh, peoples here in Michigan and how they're, how they're dealing with, with this pandemic. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, um, like you always talk about on your show, there's a lot of, you know, racial disparities and racial inequities, especially in healthcare and especially when thinking about these crises. And often indigenous communities are disproportionately impacted by things like this. And mm-hmm. I think that's for a variety of factors. Um, you know, healthcare access is definitely pretty hard on reservations already. And so, that has been definitely an ongoing issue to think about how to get health care and how to get telehealth when people don't have internet and things like that. Um, but I think also in Michigan, it's really important to note that casinos drive a lot of tribal government revenue. They drive education services um, and just in general tribal operations. And so when the casinos have been closed, it's been pretty difficult for tribes to maintain the same level of programs that they would want um, to be offering to their tribal community. And so we have talked a little bit, you know, there's, there's federal funding, there was corona relief funding um, passed in March, but that money actually hadn't reached tribes until last week. And it was kind of caught up in a huge kind of legal web, and it was really complex. But some, for some tribes, this, they got a fair amount of money, and it's allowed them to kind of, you know, set a foundation for, you know, keeping health and social distancing guidelines in place. But for other tribes, it's, it's barely even enough to keep the government running for a month, and staff are being, staff are being cut, and elder care is really important for our communities. I mean, mm-hmm. elders are so important. They carry a lot of cultural knowledge. Um, they carry a lot of wisdom, and they've done a lot of work um, in our communities over generations, and so that's a huge priority as well right now for us that we're facing. Mm. Uh, so when you founded Indigenizing the News, uh, you talked about the goal being to help educate non-Native allies about what's happening in Native communities. Uh, I want you to talk about that that role and and how successful you think that was at ind- Indigenizing the News, but to also talk about how that kind of expands now with you working for Bridge. Yeah, um, I think that's that's exactly right. I think when I founded Indigenizing the News, it was on a two-part mission. The first was 
to empower a lot of Indigenous friends and other community members to keep learning about our own and other communities because, like I said, Indigenous communities are not a monolith, and so we you know, need to learn about the histories of other communities. But also a huge part of it was educating non-Native and non-Indigenous people in some of our contemporary issues in a way to kind of you know, write back against some of the stereotypes that we see in the media, in movies, with sports teams, mascots, everything, you know, ranging from now. I mean, Land Lakes just uh, took off their Indian Maiden from their butter package. And there's a lot, you know, revolving around those types of decisions as well. And so I think it's been a really amazing thing to see some of my subscribers, you know, email me or reach out to me and say, oh, my gosh, like, you know, I didn't know about, you know, this indigenous organization that is, you know, two streets away from me. Or, you know, I've been really interested now in thinking about food sovereignty more than I ever have. And so I've received a lot of positive feedback um, from non-Indigenous people who have really stopped and reflected on the lack of Indigenous education in their own lives and really made it a point to kind of seek out that information in the future. And so now with Bridge, it's really awesome to be able to cover that um, just in a mainstream media source and in something that, you know, Michigan, we have a very large indigenous community through our state and to be able to, you know, write about sovereignty and, you know, legal history and and casinos and how those impact um, tribal budgets and some of the other stories that I'm planning on for this summer, they have a lot of you know, you know, facts and really like breaking news types of things, but they also have a deconstruction of stereotypes embedded within them mm. and just a sense of contemporary existence and survivance. Mm. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Megan Gupta. She is covering tribal news in Michigan for Bridge Magazine, and she is the founder of Indigenizing the News, a digital news source that's dedicated to educating non-Native allies about Native nations, cultures, issues, and knowledge systems. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Tell us uh, what questions you have for Megan Lada Gupta, Bridge Magazine's new reporter covering Native issues, tribal issues here in the state of Michigan. How well do you think media do covering issues important to Native nations? Uh, we especially want to hear from you if you're a member of one of the 15 tribal nations here in the state of Michigan. What stories and issues would you like to see covered more often? Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll try to work you into the conversation uh, Megan, Steph on Twitter uh, notes that she says, fun fact, same-sex marriage in Michigan was legalized first by the Little Traverse Band of Ottawa Indians in 2013. That's something I didn't know about uh, about one of the, the Native nations, the tribal nations here in the state. Yeah, I think that speaks to some of the things that we were talking about in terms of the fact that you know, tribes operate as sovereign nations, and they carry a nation-to-nation relationship with local, state, and federal governments. And so, you know, they have the authority to pass laws and rules and maintain that self-authority over their community and over their lands. And so, I mean, that's really amazing to hear. I actually didn't know that either, but it doesn't surprise me at all. Hmm. 
I, I wonder if you can also talk a little about tribal issues as they fit into the conversation that we're having about who will be president for the next four years. Uh, we do still have an election coming up in November. It may look a little different than elections that we've had before, but the same kinds of choices will be made. Uh, how, do, how do those issues affect tribal, tribal nations right now? That's a great question. I think this election is, I mean, it's, it's very important for everyone. Um, and I think one of the biggest issues that we're looking towards um, to see highlighted in this election and in campaigns is the crisis of missing and murdered Indigenous women. Mm. Um, it's, it's a huge crisis. It's impacting Michigan. And um, yeah, I can, I can happy to speak more on it if you'd like. Yeah, absolutely. That's not something I'd heard about. Uh, what's going on with that? Yeah, so missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit people, it's often abbreviated as MMIW. Mm -hmm. um, it's a crisis that basically revolves around jurisdiction issues, often on tribal land. Um, it's very complex, but basically tribal nations over time have lost the authority to prosecute non-tribal members for acts of um, sexual violence on their lands. So a lot of the time we're seeing... Um, a lot of non-tribal members going on to tribal lands and committing acts of violence, sexual violence specifically against Native women, um, girls, and two-spirit people without a lot of consequences for that. And so usually that jurisdiction then might fall on the federal government, but a lot of these cases are actually not picked up. High levels of these cases are actually not really investigated. Mm. So we're seeing this kind of huge lack of account of accountability and a lack of resources for tribal nations to be able to protect their communities and prosecute people for these crimes. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I was I was unaware of uh, uh, of that issue. So I'm glad that uh, that you brought it up here. Uh, but before we let you go, I want you to talk just a little about a couple of the stories that you've written for Bridge already, uh, and they have to do with tribal casinos and potential tension between them and Governor Whitmer or uh, Attorney General Dana Nessel over reopening. Of course, that's a story that's also unfolding here in Detroit, where we have three casinos that mm -hmm. desperately want to reopen. And the city, of course, wants the revenue that it gets from there. Uh, the, the, this is a very important tribal issue, though, the operation of casinos, the money that comes from that. Uh, give us a sense of what that tension looks like between those tribes and uh, the state officials. Yeah, casinos, you know, like I said, are huge drivers of tribal government revenue. And casinos have actually been the way that indigenous peoples have been able to provide for our communities for a long time. Mm -hmm. And so with these casino closures, there's obviously been a very devastating financial impact. And the slow kind of disbursement of federal funds has also made it really difficult for tribal nations to continue providing these resources. Um, so some tribes have considered reopening casinos earlier than um, stay-at-home orders and guidelines in the state of Michigan. And technically, that is their right because they're sovereign nations and they have the ability um, to, you know, decide what to do regarding their businesses and their lands and their resources. But we're seeing now that a lot of tribal nations are worried about the impact that coronavirus will have 
um, with customers coming into casinos and really wanting to make sure, because of this disproportionate impact on healthcare, really wanting to protect their employees, their staff, customers, and communities. So I know that the Sioux Tribes at Kuwait and Casinos are actually planned to open now on June 1st, mm-hmm. which is in line with a lot of CDC guidelines and local state and federal guidelines. So it's really great to see those nation-nation collaborations mm. going on. Yeah. Uh, you know, the idea of casinos reopening, I think, makes some of us real nervous, though, about public health. I mean, it, it seems like the kind of environment where uh, risk is going to be really high. And and the idea that, that you can manage that risk in a way that protects not just the people there, but of course, the people who work there, I think, mm-hmm. is one of the things that, that that has people a little bit uh, a little bit on edge right now. Well, it's great to see that a lot of our tribal leaders are working with um, Whitmer and Nestle and in their own local governments and in um, the federal government as well, and really prioritizing that and putting health and safety first mm-hmm. and delaying some of the reopening. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Megan Lada Gupta. Uh, again, congratulations uh, on joining Bridge Magazine, and we look forward to the work that you're going to do while you're there. Thanks for being with us on Detroit Today, too. Thanks, Steve. Thanks so much. Yeah. All right. Uh, We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to take a look at the tension between employment and health through the lens of essential workers. People are anxious to get back to work. People are anxious to see the economy recharge. But can we do that without putting more people's lives at risk? We'll talk about it next on Detroit Today, right after a break. Stay with us. 